Then I want to uh, wish everyone welcome to this uh, seminar on how can God allow suffering. Uh, this event is a part of the Skeptics Week, hosted by Trondheim Christian Student Fellowship. And during this week, we want to raise uh, difficult and challenging questions and attempt to answer them, but also uh, make sure that. Uh, uh, that you are able to raise your concerns and your questions as well. Uh, no. Um, how can God allow suffering? It's quite difficult, but also a very interesting question. Uh, and with us today to talk about this question, we have Peter S. Williams. He has uh, studied philosophy at uh, Cardiff University, Sheffield University, at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Uh, he is currently uh, an assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gimelkorn School of University, uh, School of Journalism and Communication. Uh, and having said that, I think I'm just going to give the word to you. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I expect that amongst the audience we have people with a number of different reasons for turning up uh, to such a talk, uh, with such a question. And this question might mean different things to different people. The question, how can God allow suffering, might just be a, a cry of anguish in the face of uh, pain, suffering, uh, other people's despair, and so on. It might be uh, just a, a genuine request for, could you please give me what you think are some of the reasons why God allows suffering? And that's where uh, many Christians ask that kind of question would probably jump in, but I'm not going to in the prepared remarks today. Rather, I'm going to take it that that question might well be asked uh, in the form of it, it being an assumption that there's an argument against believing God raise this question is to raise an objection to the rationality of belief in God given the fact of evil in the world and that's the question that I'm going to deal with in my prepared remarks and that's why I've subtitled this book Problems with the Problem of Evil Moral values when we're talking about evil, moral values are well, they're either objective realities, that is, they're facts that are independent of us, they're the sort of things that are discovered by people in our moral experience, or if they're not objective, they are subjective, they are dependent upon and thus relative to uh, the subjects. <laughs> I have the power. <laughs> so a moral subjectivist might argue like this someone who believes that morals are subjective might say look number one if the biblical God the Christian God exists then he is by definition according to you Christians objectively good but two there are no objective moral values so three it follows that therefore the biblical God at least doesn't exist there is, you know, I start with an argument against biblical theism. 
Uh, that conclusion seems to follow from the premises. It's a logically valid argument. Of course, the question is, are both of the premises true? Particularly premise number two. But someone who wanted to argue this way, a subjectivist who wanted to argue against God from the, from the lack of values, including, of course, the lack of any objective evil in reality, they must pay the price, as it were, of swallowing the truth claims of moral subjectivism. Uh, they can't consistently use the argument from evil against God. Their argument is precisely an argument from the lack of evil or good. And they can't consistently claim to have any arguments for anything, including any arguments for the truth of subjectivism about morals or atheism about God. They can't consistently claim to have any arguments about anything that ought to convince anyone. That seems quite a high price tag to pay to me to take that approach. The atheist philosopher Russ Schaefer Landau uh, argues that some moral views are true, are objectively true, and others false. And my thinking them doesn't make them so, saying they're objective, they're independent of me. And he argues that individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. The best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making. The atheist philosopher Michael Roos argues that morality is not just an emotion or a preference. And he gives the illustration, uh, stomping on little babies for fun is wrong, even if the whole world thinks otherwise. We can be mistaken in our moral beliefs. The atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen argued similarly that moral truisms, like it's wrong to stomp on little babies for fun, are as available to me or to any atheist as they are to the believer in God. Of course they are. He says you can be confident of the objective truth, the truth of these moral utterances. They are more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. I think that's a very good argument in favour of belief in the objectivity of moral values. Classically, the problem of evil has been presented as a logical problem uh, against belief in God. It's a formulation of the problem that philosophers uh, in their kind of uh, label it on the tin as it does kind of manner have called uh, the logical problem of evil. And it points to the claim that objective evil exists and the claim that God exists and says these two claims are incompatible. They're logically incompatible. Well, are they? Philosophers worked out that they needed to be a little bit more specific about what they were claiming here in order to try and prove whether or not these claims were indeed logically incompatible. So, for example, uh, Michael Peterson notes that the alleged inconsistency between these two claims is, is not obvious. It, it's neither explicit nor formal in nature. To make the, the purported 
supposedly implicit inconsistently to bring it out, to make it explicit, some additional statements or propositions must be specified, must be made. So here is uh, atheist Robin Le Provenance, uh, extra bringing out of what he thinks are the reasons why the claim that God exists and that uh, evil exists are indeed logically incompatible. I think he makes about as good a stab at this argument as you can make. So he puts it this way, and, and trying to formalise this, this sort of intuition of an inconsistency into, a, into an explicit argument shows... Uh, in itself some of the weaknesses of the argument and um, um, why things are more complicated than they may at first sight appear. So he says, one, if uh, God is all-knowing, then he will be aware of suffering. And if he's all-powerful, then he'll be able to prevent suffering. And if he's perfectly good, then he will desire to prevent suffering. But two, clearly, God does not prevent all suffering. From which it follows that three, so either there is no such God, or if there is a deity, he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good. Although he might be any two of those three things. So, notice that the logical problem of evil, now we've tried to make it into an explicit, logically valid philosophical argument, is not, after all, an argument for atheism. It's certainly not an argument for a naturalistic or materialistic worldview. It's not even an argument against belief in some kind of deity, theism, as such. It's only an argument against a certain type of theistic belief, that is, belief in a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good. Of course, this is precisely the kind of God that Christians believe in, but those points are nevertheless significant, I think. So, J.L. Mackey, in his uh, famous book as an Oxford philosopher, The Miracle of Theism was required reading when I was back in my undergraduate days. He said that the opposition between good and evil can be thought of in such a way that a wholly good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could. And indeed, he noted it would usually be said that God cannot do things that are logically impossible. If God, for example, can't create a circle that is square. And that's not a limitation on omnipotence. And he says, this fact, uh, we can agree, is no real departure from omnipotence. And so he concluded uh, that the problem of evil, this logical problem of evil, does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Atheist philosopher Richard M. Gale, he says... We often feel justified in bringing about or not preventing some evil so that a greater evil can be avoided or a greater good, an outweighing good, realised. And Robin Le Pauvre, again, whose argument we've been looking at 
himself concluded that suffering may be part of the divine design insofar as suffering is an essential consequence of some greater good. Now to go on and try and give, a, give some claims as to what those greater goods might be, that would be to go entering into the, the area that's called theodicy, of trying to give the reasons why God allows evil. And uh, you might want to ask me about that later, but that's not what the talk's about, so I will draw the line there. It's enough in the face of the logical problem of evil just to show that it's possible, if it's possible that God has some reasons for allowing evil, then that fact would make it uh, logically consistent that there is a God and that there is evil. Excuse me. Yes, sir. Yes. I, I, I was going to take questions at, at the end of the, of the lecture, if I may. Not really a question, but uh, just a point of clarification, then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, what kind of suffering are we talking about here? Is it physical suffering, mental suffering? Uh, uh, I, I would include any here. I think anything. I'm, I'm really talking about um, the problem of, of evil. And I think that the, the, the issue that people would have with any kind of suffering is the idea that that suffering is itself something evil that a good being should not allow. Um, if, if you didn't think the suffering was something that a, that a good deity sh- ought not to allow, if he was good because it's evil, then, then we wouldn't have a uh, philosophical problem with, with suffering per se. So I'm, yeah, I'm bundling suffering of any kind under the concept of evil. So the atheist William L. Rowe, who is uh, himself a noted advocate of uh, arguments from evil, says that some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of a theistic god. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Indeed, granted um, incompatibilism, he's talking about the the idea that people could have uh, free will, libertarian free will, uh, granted this idea, there's a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of a, a theistic God, a God who is all good and all powerful and all knowing and so on. Talking about this libertarian free will incompatibilism, he's really gesturing towards Alvin Plantinga's famous free will defense, uh, which really uh, boils down to these two steps. First of all, Plantinga argues uh, maybe this is true. Uh, A world containing creatures who have significant moral freedom, like we do, is more valuable than a world containing no creatures with that significant moral freedom. So to create creatures capable of choosing moral good, of freely choosing to do the right thing, God must create creatures capable of choosing moral evil, of not choosing the right thing. And he can't, this is logically impossible, it's logically impossible to give creatures this freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from performing evil because then you haven't given them the freedom to perform evil and you you can't give and not give at one and the same time. And he then points out, uh, makes the, and he admits, this is an implausible claim But so long as this is logically possible, that's all you need here, he makes the the implausible but logically possible claim that all so-called natural evil, you know, suffering caused by uh, people uh, slipping up on the ice and breaking their leg or having a volcano uh, explode in the middle of their city or whatever, all such uh, naturally caused suffering, uh, natural evil, 
is caused by the misuse of, I don't know, say, angelic free will. Angels who have fallen and become demons. Well, if, if that's even logically possible, now that free will defence about uh, humans having freedom of choice, we can extend that to cover any and all evil, whatever its cause. Well, if that is possible, then that proves that God and evil are logically possible together in one and the same possible world. So Plantinga notes uh, in a more recent volume uh, that most atheist thinkers have given up the idea that the existence of sin and suffering and evil and so on are logically incompatible with theistic belief. Just one more quote around the point home. Michael Bergman, uh, writing in the journal Philosophia Christi, writes, there's a nearly unanimous agreement among both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion today that the logical version of the argument from evil just doesn't work. Instead, the conversation since, uh, particularly since Plantinga's work in the mid to late 1960s, has moved on in the philosophy of religion to what's called the evidential problem of evil, where one no longer tries to claim that evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of God, but rather one argues that evil is nonetheless some evidence against God. It gives you some reason to disbelieve in God, even though it's possible that God and evil both coexist. Here's a, a sort of typical way of, of trying again to work out that evidential form of the argument into an explicit form. People will generally argue along these kind of lines. I don't see a good reason why God would do or allow X, whatever that might be. That might be a, a particular example of evil or the observation that there is, say, so much evil uh, in the world. <coughs> but two, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't a good reason. Three, therefore there's probably no good reason for God to do or allow X. Four, but unless there's a good reason why God would do or allow X, God probably doesn't exist. Because he'd have to have such a reason, or if God exists, there's no gratuitous evil. From which it follows five, that God probably doesn't exist. That relative to the evidence of evil, it's unlikely that God exists. Does this argument fare better than the logical argument? Well, I think at the very least, not much better. All three of the crucial truth claims uh, of this argument are of questionable value, shall we say. For example, I, if I, I don't see a good reason, that of course would then take us into the discussion of theodicy. But let's focus on the other two propositions. Two, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't one. It's a bit like maybe someone you know, in the park saying, well, I, I can't uh, see where the dogs run off to. Um, so there probably is no dog. Um, but he can only see where the light is. 
uh, human beings are quite limited in our ability to know things, certainly compared to an omniscient being, if there is one. Uh, so, um, is it really a, a particularly uh, strong uh, claim to, to make, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then it follows from that that there probably isn't a reason. You know, how likely is it that I would know what the reasons are if there are any? So William Wainwright notes that it, it isn't even clear that our grasp of the good things that we know is, of, is sufficiently clear to warrant assurance that those, those goods that we do know of don't justify God's permission of even horrendous evils. How could we be sure about that? Or the, the claim, if, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing it, there probably isn't one. Gregory Gansel makes, I think, a, a nice point when he says those who try and press this argument or, or from this premise, they, on the one hand, they overestimate the percentage of cases where we ought to be able to figure out God's reasons, as it were, the point that I've just made, and they underestimate the percentage of cases in which we actually can, which would take us back to the other thing. Think about earthquakes and natural suffering, natural evil here. We tend to put earthquakes into the natural evil, natural suffering column, uh, as it were. But when you think about it, plate tectonics, which are the cause of earthquakes, plate tectonics make possible the carbon cycle on planet Earth, which is essential to our planet's habitability. We couldn't live here if we didn't have plate tectonics here. So it's a kind of a pays-your-money-takes-your-choice situation. Would you rather not exist and not have earthquakes, or would you prefer to exist uh, somewhere where there are earthquakes? And indeed, it's not so much earthquakes that kill people, but substandard buildings caused by human greed is an illustration of this fact. In 2010, there was an earthquake in Haiti, which was uh, seven on the, uh, the Richter scale, magnitude seven earthquake. It resulted in 230,000 deaths. That's rather a stark contrast with the almost identical strength Californian earthquake in recent years, which caused only 57 deaths. And it's not that the earthquake was different, they were pretty much the same value earthquake, it's that the building wrecks, uh, the skimping of building materials in order to make money off the contract and so on, were different. Trakis and uh, Yugi Nagasawa point out that uh, this analogy with parents, uh, parents have certain rights over their children that strangers don't. Similarly, maybe God, in virtue of his role as our creator, he might have rights over us that we don't have over each other. So we've good reason from that analogy to think that uh, a God might be morally justified in virtue of occupying this role of being our creator in permitting certain evils, say, to happen to us. Uh, but that, B, we can't be morally justified because we, we're not in the same role, the same kind of relationship to us, uh, in permitting people to suffer those evils. 
so you can't simply say, um, if, if I were running the show, I wouldn't be justified in allowing this to happen to people. Therefore, God can't be. Um, because God's in a different relationship to us than we are to each other. Uh, one can't simply extrapolate uh, our responsibilities uh, to God in direct fashion like that. Premise four was uh, the premise that unless there is a good reason why God would, would do or allow X, God doesn't exist. I.e., you could put it this way, that if God exists, there's, there's no evil that is gratuitous, that doesn't have a good reason for it happening. Peter Van Invagen uh, puts forward what he calls the his vagueness argument, uh, which basically points out that just as uh, there's no least amount of money such that a fine of any greater amount would be an unduly severe punishment for a particular crime. Maybe it's the case that there's no least amount of pain such that any greater amount of pain would be too high a price to pay for widespread and significant preachly freedom. Uh, it's a bit like saying, you know, how many grains of sand do you need until you have a sand dune? There is no uh, least number of grains of sand that you need in order to be a sand dune. So if you're going to make a sand dune, at some point you just have to arbitrarily draw a line and say, okay, let's have that much, let's stop there. Um, but uh, would it not be a sand dune anymore if you just took off one grain of sand? That, that seems implausible. And if there are situations where uh, evil is behaving in that way, there is no least amount of evil that is necessary to achieve a certain good end, then it could be the case that there are evils that in and of themselves have no direct uh, justifying good. They're just part, it's just part of the more total broader situation, as it were. So I think that the crucial premises one and two and four, which we've concentrated on there, are all of them, uh, let's put it this way, at least questionable. And that this argument from ev ed evidential argument from evil is at the very least not a particularly strong uh, argument. Michael Tooley, uh, in this book, a very good book on this subject, a debate between Alvin Plantinger and Michael Tooley on knowledge of God. Tooley, who is perhaps one of the world's foremost proponents of the evidential argument from evil, uh, concludes this in their debate. He says that the evidential argument is highly controversial, and even if it can be shown that the evils that are found in the world render the existence of God unlikely, it might still be the case that the existence of God is not unlikely all things considered. For perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by appealing either to positive arguments, reasons in support of the existence of God, or merely to the idea that belief in the existence of God is, is properly basic, is just a rational intuition that people have that is a strong enough rational intuition to overcome this evidence, if you think there is some, from the problem of evil. Let me give you some an illustrations of, of this. Plantinga gives the example of uh, someone who's accused of a crime uh, and against whom all of the evidence that is presented in court stands. All the evidence goes against them, points to their guilt. Uh, but he says, even though the person who's accused of that crime 
they know that they're innocent. In such a case, that person's not necessarily obliged to abandon belief in their own innocence, just because all of the evidence that's been presented seems to indicate their guilt, even though they know they didn't do it. The, the basic belief that they didn't commit the crime intrinsically defeats the, the evidence the defeaters brought against it. He makes the theological application by suggesting that belief in God might, for some people at least, be a similarly uh, intrinsically uh, defeating uh, intuition or experience uh, that might uh, defeat some of or all of the defeaters brought against it. Well, here's a more sort of statistical way of thinking about it. Suppose you learn, I don't think this is true, but suppose you learn that 95% of the French population can't swim. Now, that statistic is quite strong evidence to think that Pierre, your friend from Paris, can't swim. Yeah? Does it follow that you should believe that Pierre can't swim? Well, of course not. What if you and Pierre spent last Saturday afternoon together swimming? Your experience of Pierre is much better evidence to think that he can swim, even though the statistical evidence by itself makes it very likely that he can't. Relative to the statistical evidence, it's very unlikely that Pierre can swim. But relative to everything that you think you know, it is very likely that Pierre can swim. Similarly, for people with an experience or an intuition of God's existence, they might say, yeah, relative just to the data of evil and suffering in the world, it might be unlikely that God exists. But relative to everything I think I know, including my experience of God, it's very likely that God exists. So where the evidence points may differ depending upon your individual circumstances, what you think you know beyond just this discussion, as it were. So you might also go back to that balance of evidence. Yeah, we have the evidential problem of evil on this side, supposing you think that has some weight to it. But on the other side, not only do you have your uh, properly basic religious belief, your religious experience and so on, if you have that, but you maybe have a lot of arguments from natural theology in the other balance pan, and there are a lot of them, and you might think that those outweigh any uh, evidence or remaining evidence from the problem of, of evil. Particularly, let me just finally draw your attention to the, the so-called moral argument here. In order to, to even mount the argument from evil, we started off at the beginning by talking about having to assume that, that there are such things as objective values. But if we do assume that objective moral values exist, so if we think that the second premise here is more plausibly true than false, then we have an argument for belief in at least some kind of God, a God who is uh, an all-good being, at least. The argument would be this, that the existence of objective moral values in some way entails the existence of such a God. 
some sort of transcendent, holy good, personal reality that is the ground of our uh, objective moral values and duties. Why, why might one think that that second premise, that crucial premise, is true? Well, you might say it's because uh, objective moral values, what, what are they when we analyse them? They seem to be moral ideals, and objective value is a moral ideal. It's something that prescribes or commands our behaviour. It doesn't just describe what we do, it tells us what we should do. Indeed, we, are, we have obligations, moral obligations, to behave or not behave in certain ways according to these objective moral standards. And they are things before which we appropriately feel guilty when we do the wrong thing. But an idea or a character, a moral ideal, seems to require some sort of a mind, personality. Uh, a prescription or a command seems to require a prescriber, a commander. How can you have a command without someone commanding it? An obligation or the notion of, of appropriate guilt, again, seems to require someone who obligates us. I can't be obligated to impersonal things. This laptop can't obligate me in any way, shape or form. Uh, nor can I feel appropriately guilty before my laptop. I can feel appropriately guilty before persons. But if I'm appropriately guilty before uh, a, an objective moral standard, one that transcends individual or groups of humans, doesn't depend upon us, or me. It's a transcendent objective moral reality but one that I appropriately feel guilty before. Then that again seems to imply that there's something personal about this realm of moral values that we encounter. As philosopher H.P. Owen puts it, on the one hand objective moral claims transcend every human person. But on the other hand, it's contradictory, it's, it's implausible at least, to assert that impersonal claims, non-personal claims, are entitled to the allegiance of our wills, that we're, we really are prescribed or obligated by these um, moral values if they're just impersonal things. The only solution to this paradox, argues Owen, is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of, well, let's call it God. Indeed, J.L. Mackey, again in his The Miracle of Theism, concluded that if there are objective moral values, they make the existence of God more probable, at least, than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality, objective morality, to the existence of God. Of course, Mackey's an atheist, so here's what he does with this. He says, so let's not believe in objective moral values. Let's assume that the moral values are all things that we just invent. Of course, if you go that route, then you can't use the problem of evil against God anyway. If we adopt instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem, the problem of the moral argument, would not arise, says Mackey. But we have rather logically limited options here. We could, we could A, be consistent by believing in objective moral values and believing that a transcendent personal good deity of some kind exists. Or B, 
We could believe, with Mackey, that nothing is objectively good or evil in order to consistently believe that there is no God of that kind. But if we do that, why should we even be caring and valuing something like consistency? Or C, we could be inconsistent by believing that objective moral values do exist, but that there is no God of any kind. Um, but if we do think that objective moral values exist, then shouldn't we value consistency? Which would take us back to option A. Of course, I'm not just a theist. I'm not just advocating belief in some kind of God. I, I, I do want to advocate belief in the kind of God that Christians believe in, the kind of God who is all good and all powerful and omniscient and so on. But that's also the kind of God who has himself come into the world as a human being in Jesus, if Christianity is true, and has subjected himself to the suffering of the world, who suffers alongside us. The Christian novelist Dorothy L. Sayers put it this way, that for whatever reason God chose to make man subject to sorrows and death and so on, he has had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he felt it worthwhile. Uh, and if he feels it's worthwhile, maybe that gives us some encouragement to think that it's worthwhile as well. Thank you. very much. I think it was quite interesting to listen to. Um, uh, as I've understood, you will t uh, take part in the debate at 2 mm -hmm. o'clock in S6 yes. about does God exist, mm -hmm. which you will uh, discuss together with Aina Duanga Byrne. Um, so I understand that you might need some preparation time for that. Yeah, I'm being collected, so, yeah. so when people arrive and, and gesture at me that I have to go, I'm afraid I will have to go. But until then, uh, I am at your disposal and interested to, to hear your comments and feedback. Yeah, so do we have any questions? Thank you. Uh, Ah, right. So there are not. So it wasn't as no. severe. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I may. I, I think. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for, for pointing out the specific illustration. Yeah, I will. I will. Ch I will change in future yeah. presentations because of that. That info. So that's useful to know. Um, of course, I'm, I'm quoting from an article. You know. But I think that the, the general point that you, you still can you can compare natural disasters that that happen in countries that have endemic corruption, uh, that have governments that care more for their own wealth than for the people, um, and, and so on. And people suffer a lot more, of course, in those situations from the natural disasters than they do in wealthy Western democracies like Norway or England or the US. 
Um, so a lot of the, the, the suffering that we might be tempted to attribute to natural evil, as, it, as it's called, is actually more to do with how humans choose with their free will to uh, structure society, given their knowledge that those kind of events do happen. Um, so, um, but as I say, still, you know, 57 Californians died in a, if I, you know, in a, in a society that didn't have uh, endemic corruption and, and so on, presumably. Uh, don't know the details, but uh, I'm just making the point that we, what we often think of, oh, well, that's, that's natural suffering, that isn't even covered by the idea about people's free will and so on, um, which y- you can push forward as a, as a theodicy as well as just using it merely as a defence. Um, if you're pushing it into theodicy, that, that theodicy actually covers a lot more territory than we often think that it does. Yeah. yeah. So I agree your point stands for right. It's a difference in absolute terms. Yeah. Twice as much. Right. Uh, wow. Still, still it, it okay. Well, thank, thank you. I, I will definitely change that, that slide. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I will tweak my illustration in light of those, those facts. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah. From, from, so from a Christian point of view, is, is all of the suffering necessary? Yeah. It, yeah, is, is all of it tied to this has to happen in order for a greater good or to avoid a greater evil? Uh, I don't think Christian have to claim that. Some Christians would claim that. Uh, I don't think any Christian claims to be able to give you an exhaustive list of all of the greater evils and all of the worse evils that, that are the, 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 uh, the ends that justify all of the evils in the world. I don't think anyone claims to be able to do that. I think that list is probably uh, longer and more interesting than many atheists realise um, but as I, I pointed out with um, Peter Banning Reagan's vagueness argument um, there's a philosopher arguing that this, this idea that um, every instance of evil has to be in, in and of itself related to some justifying good you know, it, it, that's okay to allow because it allows this greater good or it avoids that greater evil um, that is plausibly false as an idea, that there could at least be some circumstances in which um, even an omnipotent being arranging the world, uh, trying to arrange it uh, with the best intentions, as it were, just has to draw an arbitrary line, just as when we decide you know, how, much, how much punishment is appropriate to give for a particular crime, we just have to decide, well, here's where we're going to set the final. Here's how many days in prison it's going to be. Um, but couldn't the prisoner say, hey, look, if you let me out of jail a minute earlier than the end of my sentence, you really think that that's going to make a difference to my recidivism rate or the, the rate of, that other people will commit this crime because of the deterrence value of sentence, surely that last minute of my sentence is completely unjustifiable. It's not necessary. It doesn't achieve anything. But then they could say that about the last hour of their sentence, 
day, they whittle away. It's like, if we're going to impose punishments for crimes, and there's deterrence for crimes and so on, and that seems in general to be a good thing to do, then we have to arbitrarily pick an amount that, well, it's certainly not too much, you know, you've parked on a double yellow line. Ten years of hard labour, that would clearly be too much. But you've parked on a double yellow line, a 50 krona final, whatever it is, well, you know, maybe uh, 49.50 would do. Um, but that, you know, what is, what is the minimum amount that is justifiable? Maybe there isn't one. You just need to pick an amount. And maybe it's like that with, with evils in the world sometimes. God just has to pick an amount. Uh, otherwise you end up, you know, you would end up not having the, the total situation, which the total situation is overall worth it, as it were. Yeah. Yes, sir, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi. Hi. Thank you for that comment and um, make two comments back on it, two reflections back on it. Uh, one is that, of course, if the biblical story in the, the Gospels is to be trusted, it, it's not actually true to say that um, Jesus was always in a, a pleasant state, that, that he was sort of immune to the, the evils and suffering of the circumstances around him. Um, the Gospels record that he was, he was uh, in such... Uh, uh, worry and, and, and fright and fear of going to the cross that in the Garden of Gethsemane he, 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 uh, he bled drops of, of blood uh, which is, I, you can look it up online again, I don't know the name of the medical condition but in, in extremis you, you, you can bleed blood through your, your sweat pores uh, he was so frightened of doing it but he, but he did it anyway he thought it was worthwhile if your question in the face of suffering is basically it boils down to is the pain worth the gain well Jesus certainly thought it was and that fact becomes even more significant if you think that Jesus is who Christians think he is that Jesus is the son of God that he is divine um, that he is God incarnate if God himself is willing to come and suffer that kind of embarrassing, embarrassing, literally excruciating crucis cross uh, death and think it is worthwhile 
and, and do that on our behalf uh, to, to rescue us from our own propensity to misuse our free will to do the wrong thing, to sin, um, which is something that, that yeah, other people suffer from, but God is always, the, if, he, if he's the source of, of the moral law that we're talking about, all sin is, is uh, a, a pain and offence uh, towards God. And yet if he thinks, well, despite all of that, I still love you so much that I want to suffer on your half to help you out of this situation, he's like, okay, God thinks the pain is worth the gain, and if God is who we think he is in Christianity, like, well, then he must be right about that. It's not like, you know, God could be wrong about something like this, given who God is. If Christianity is true, um, so your observations are, are about uh, about Christ, um, I, I think, take on a particular significance. If you also think that the Christian understanding of who He is is correct, it, it, it really uh, says that this is a, this is a religion that was founded uh, crucially in in an event of divine suffering. Um, so you might think that it's a, a religion that has something sort of particularly. Uh, unique in that sense to say about suffering. Yes, thank you. Now, why do we think it's important that God cares about our suffering? Because I guess we think it's important that, that, first of all, that anyone cares about our suffering. When when you're suffering and you find someone who cares about that, and is even, you know, even if they're not able to actually do something about the suffering, but just you can share your suffering with them and have have someone say, "Yeah, I I, I understand." Um, that in and of itself is something that we intuitively feel as significant. But to think that the per- that the person who is Thinking our suffering is important and significant and worthwhile and so on is is God. Um, and that I think gives it a whole new level of significance. Also, I- including the fact that, of course, given that God is omniscient, that, that, that you know he, he would know whether or not it is worthwhile. So if he thinks it is worthwhile, then it's true that it is worthwhile. Uh, and that is an encouraging thing to, to think you know when you're going through suffering. There's lots of, of promises from God in the Bible about suffering, but they are not promises to, on the whole, to deliver people from suffering. They are promises that if you go through this suffering, you can go through it with me. I, I'll help you, th- I won't take you away from the suffering, but I'll help you through the suffering, and it will be worthwhile in the end. Like the pain will be worth the gain. Uh, St. Paul, in one of his letters, writes about, I don't consider our, lo- our, our light and momentary troubles, he says. But you have to remember, this is a guy who had been nearly stoned to death several times, who'd been shipwrecked, who'd nearly been starving. Who, he knew what suffering was. He says, our light and momentary sufferings are not worthy of being compared to the glory that will be revealed uh, in the children of, of God when, we, when we're with him in heaven. So to think that, you know, okay, I know f- 
because God says that it is worthwhile, that is encouraging. And the last fact, of course, it comes back to this thing that, that all of our sins are sins against God. All of our offences are offences to him. They are all times where basically we're giving God the finger and saying, yeah, okay, moral law, moral command, you're, you're good and you, for my good and other people's good, want me to behave in this way, but to you, I'm going to do it my way. And yet, and that, that, that sin, that misuse of our freedom causes other people suffering, it causes ourselves suffering. And yet God wants to come alongside us, particularly through, through Christ, and say, yeah, I am the one that you've pained, and yeah, I love you so much that I am willing to, to set that aside, to absorb that pain, to swallow that pain, in order that it not get in the way of a loving relationship between us. God, God doesn't excuse our sins when they're, they're, when they're not things that we've just you know, made a mistake, when we've, when we've actually deliberately done the wrong thing, as we often do, knowing that we shouldn't do it. He says, oh, I don't excuse you. You've done the wrong thing, but I am willing to forgive you. And in our, certainly in, in our experience, to forgive someone it is to kind of take the pain that they've caused upon ourselves and absorb that ourselves so that we can still have a relationship. And I, and I think that's at least one of the things that's expressed on the cross by Jesus, given that Jesus is God. It's God saying, yeah, I'm going to take that pain, the suffering you've caused me. I'm going to illustrate, you know, this is me illustrating the fact that I'm taking the pain you've caused me in order that we can have a loving relationship. And out of that loving relationship, I will be able to, to redeem good out of evil and bring you into a situation that means that it will all have been worth it. And that, and that, that the suffering of, of creation itself will all have been worth it uh, in the end even though that might be hard to see now, given the, the limited data set that we can observe here and now. So, I think there's a lot of different levels to answering that question, but I think it's a very deep question and, and brings you right into the heart of Christian theology. Yeah. whether to create us or not. Uh, he chose to create beings like us, beings that can misuse our freedom and so on. Why did he do that? Because he wants a loving relationship with people. But he wants us to not be puppets who are robots following our programming. He wants us to be people who can love, who can choose, who can say, no, thank you. Um, and to give us that freedom, as you know, back to Plantinga and so on, he, he can't give us that freedom and not allow us that freedom. But he, do, he does it in such a way that he knows that giving us that freedom, being prepared himself to suffer because of that, it's not just like, oh, you guys suffer, it'll all be worth it. 
It's like, we will suffer. God suffers in this situation as well. He's chosen that suffering upon himself, and he knows that it is worthwhile. And he gives us that suffering so that we can together have loving relationships, not just between you know, us human beings and us human beings in the world and so on, but between us and our, our creator. Um, so yeah, is the pain worth the gain? Yes. Is God indirectly responsible for there being pain? Yes. Um, but given that the pain is worth the gain, as it were, I, I don't see that as particularly problematical. It, it would be problematical if God were even indirectly responsible for pain that is not worth it in the end. If God were some sort of uh, sort of you know sort of demonic ha 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 look at you puny human beings that I have created in my suffering lab to study how much pain can you take ha 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 you know it's it's not that at, at all uh, within Christianity it, it, as I say Christ shows us a a God of of love who comes alongside us to suffer with us to to bring good and love and relationship uh, out of uh, our, our sinfulness and, and fallenness in Christian terms uh, with, a, with a goal that he knows is worthwhile. Uh, thank you. Can anyone? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah? Yes, thank you. That, that's a good question because uh, philosophers love questions about defining things. What is? What do you mean by heaven? Um, I really, I really, the Christian tradition means two two things. <coughs> One is uh, what Jesus talks about as the kingdom of heaven, uh, and he announces that the kingdom of, of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is amongst you. The kingdom of heaven is uh, is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, whom God sent. Uh, to be in heaven in the sense of something that you can enter into now it is to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Uh, uh, Jesus defines that as eternal life, eternal life is something that you can enter into now but which only finally comes to fruition or flourishes in its utmost after death and indeed the Bible doesn't in a sort of platonic way of this sort of Plato's idea of you know, we have these, these meat bodies and we have a, an immaterial soul and when you die your soul goes off to the, the, the land of the form of the good or whatever uh, and uh, you live this sort of uh, eternal disembodied existence in, in the heavenlies uh, it's, it's not that idea yes there is more to us than our, than our physicality but in Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition we look forward to the resurrection of the body and indeed, the resurrection, in a sense, the, the recreation, uh, the rising to a new, glorified, transformed state of creation. The, 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 the heavens and the earth, as the, the Jews refer to it, the cosmos. It's like Jesus' resurrected body is our one foresample of what the Bible calls the new heavens and earth. Um, Revelation chapter 21 particularly a classic passage to go to on this, the last uh, letter and the last book in the Bible it talks about the new heavens and new earth which is talked about in the Old Testament, talked about by the apostles, talked about in Revelation so 
Christians are not uh, looking forward to some sort of disembodied, ghostly Casper the Ghost kind of will be in the heaven is. It's like, we will be like Jesus was when he was resurrected from the dead. Only then the whole world will be like that because it will be a world without sin, without sinfulness, with just, just of God in, in, in loving, forgiving relationship with, with people who have chosen to allow God to transform them into a state where they can no longer sin. Uh, where reality doesn't have to cater for sin existing in it. Okay, okay, so here I have a like. Okay. Yeah. I find it hard to reconcile the two ideas. That, mm-hmm. uh, we have free will here now, and that's what, uh, or that seems to be what is the reason for suffering. That people yeah, are yeah. allowed to do evil things. And uh, one way to reconcile that is to mm-hmm. say that, uh, well, it has to be that way for it to be, that's the best way it can be, or it's the most perfect way it can be. But then you're saying that when we're getting to heaven, mm. we've chosen away that because there is a better way to be. Yeah. But why not just go straight there? Why not go straight there? Absolutely. Great question. So this is why I was carefully taking presentation uh, significant free will. Uh, I the, the free will to choose between right and wrong. Okay. I do think that in in heaven we won't have that freedom to choose between right and wrong. We won't have the freedom to do the wrong thing, deliberately. Um, But I think you can't go directly there, because if God just goes directly there, let's just create beings who don't have the freedom to do the wrong thing, then that is to create beings who don't have the significant moral freedom to choose to do the right thing. To choose to be in relationship because they have the, the possibility of choosing to reject being in that redeemed relationship with God. So to, to get there through a method that, 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 that means that that state is one that is freely chosen, you have to have the state of significant free will first, and then you can, you can freely choose to be in that relationship with God, so he's not forcing himself on you, as it were, not treating us as automaton. But then, when he removes our freedom to do wrong, that's with our, our freely informed consent, as it were. And it's not that we won't have any freedom in heaven. It's not like, now we're in heaven and we're all robots. In heaven, we will have the freedom to choose between things that are good to choose. We will still have that kind of freedom, but we, but we no, I don't think we'll have the freedom uh, to deliberately choose to do the wrong thing. It's important that you choose to go into the better thing. Yeah. state is that it's really chosen. Yeah. So, so this, this state of freedom that includes freedom to do wrong is a necessary precondition of, of that greater good, which is the justifying good for it. It doesn't seem quite coherent to me. So, uh, I, I don't know if, uh, I'm guessing you think that God is omniscient. So he, he knows that this is by definition the best thing that we can do. in 
this, uh, this idea that we need to choose it. There doesn't seem to be any reason why we should need to choose it, other than it seems that that has to be the case for this to make sense. No, I'm, I'm appealing to your intuitions about the, the value of, of freely chosen relationships versus okay, that's, You're just appealing to the intuition that I like to have free choices. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with making that appeal, though. Um, right. Basically, all, all of our moral uh, understanding comes back to moral intuitions about what is good and what is bad. And we, we hold those moral intuitions rationally until such time as we've got good enough reason to abandon them. Um, so this is what you know, Kyle Nielsen was saying about that you know, atheists can have these moral intuitions that stomping on babies for fun is wrong. Uh, and that intuition is, is itself so strong that it's going to outweigh any sceptical argument for moral subjectivism. That's any argument that's going to come along to and try and reach the conclusion, therefore it's not objectively wrong to stomp on small babies for fun. Any such argument is going to have to work from premises that I'm going to find less intuitively plausible than the premise, it's wrong to stomp on babies just for fun. Okay. And that, that, that's why that, that, intuition, that moral intuition seems to be one that that in principle you can't meet the burden of proof of overturning it. Um, at least I've not met an argument that, that suffices to do that so far. So yeah, I, I, I have no problem with, with simply appealing to your moral intuitions on the matter and saying, okay, God, presumably, uh, if you think yeah, maybe option one, let's create a world full of beings who don't have the freedom to reject relationship and doing the right thing. And they always do the right thing, and that means they will always say yes to relationship with God, um, but they have no choice about it. They're just, uh, you know, following their programming as, as it were, uh, and uh, God doesn't have to suffer on their behalf. You know, everything's going to be plain sailing for Him and us and everything. Or God can. Uh, value, love, relationship, freedom, moral responsibility, uh, suffering on our behalf, uh, and so on. And I'm just going to, at that stage, have to leave it to your intuitions to say, you know, which do you think is the way to go? But still, <laughs> you're were. caricaturing it, or you're smoking things over, so you're saying, uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this first step where everything is just going to be perfect when everything's happy all the time. Uh, uh, or that we have this situation with moral truths and then we value moral uh, behavior. But that, that's still the case in, in, in the first one. It's just that everyone is moral by default. So the way you're phrasing it, it seems uh, a lot uh, more uh, different than it actually is. The only thing that's different is the choice part. Uh, well, certainly the choice part is, is different. I think, I think it's more different from that because I, I, I mentioned about God having to suffer on our behalf and so on. This is the uh, Felix Culper uh, theodicy from Alvin Plantinga as well, which you could um, look up. But um, yeah, that certainly is a difference, and I think that is a, a morally very significant difference. And um, as with many philosophical arguments, once it gets down to, do your in intuitions differ from mine on this matter? Um, we're going to find it very hard to find any more basic grounds upon which to leave any further argumentation. So I will, I will leave the thoughts with you. Uh, uh, you are, of course, the final judge and arbiter of these things as you, as you look into them. So I, I simply appeal to your intuitions and, and leave it there, I think.
anyone else before I get dragged off to uh, go and debate Ina? Well, thank you very much for, for coming. Do, if you have time, uh, come to uh, the debate, wherever that's, that's happening. I think that'll be a very uh, interesting event.